Welcome to Under the Dome. I'm Colin Campbell from the NC Insider. This is the final episode of our series that's been looking at the new podcast from Serial and the New York Times called The Improvement Association about election fraud allegations down in Bladen County, North Carolina. And for our last podcast about the podcast, we have a special guest, Zoe Chase, the reporter who brought us The Improvement Association. Thanks for joining us, Zoe. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So uh, get back into the the details of the whole series and the the overall themes that that we heard over the the last few episodes. One of the things that really struck me about the series is these people who are so full of suspicions about each other seemed really eager to tell these details to an out-of-town reporter. Uh, How did you go about getting the people in Bladen to be such willing participants in your reporting and taking, you know, phone call after phone call um, with nosy questions? Yeah, I mean... It's hard to say precisely like what the formula is besides time. I just had so much time and I kept showing up and that I think does a lot of it. But part of it was that, you know, I had done a story for This American Life before um, about Bladen County and voter f- uh, election fraud accusations in Bladen County that involved the same two groups in 2016. I know you guys talked about it at one point during the um, governor's race in 2016, McCrory. And it was still McRae. It was still the Bladen Improvement Association. All I did was report on what happened at that hearing. Like the hearing was not a secret. It was a public hearing. But things got kind of mixed up afterwards. Like it was very much the impression of people in Bladen, even the district attorney in Bladen at one point, that the Bladen Improvement Association was still under investigation. But they weren't. It really was. What what had happened was... McRae was suspected of being already up to some of the stuff that he was accused of in 2018. And they passed that on to um, the Justice Department um, at the end of this hearing in 2016. Anyway, like McRae was was really the focus of um, continuing an investigation from the from the state side and from the federal side. But because Bladen Improvement had been originally accused, especially in Bladen, everyone was just kind of like, they're under investigation. They were found to have done this like illegal thing. And all I did was report on like what was actually found at the hearing. And I don't think as we we discussed this a little bit earlier, it's um there's not a ton of media in Bladen County um that are just, you know, constantly reporting on um the news of the state or the news in the state that affects them. And so I think the Bladen Improvement Association when we start, when I came back to them in 2019 and started reporting with them again, I had already done this story that was the only story that they kind of had to be like, see, we were exonerated in 2018. I mean, they exonerated is maybe not the right word. Like they had done something wrong. They, it was a, a witness issue on a ballot, but there were no voters who claimed to have been violated. And it was, um, I can get into it, but the point is like they that allegation had been dismissed and the stuff McCray was accused of was continuing. And they had this story that I had done before. And I think that that's what made in the beginning Horace, the head of the Bladen Improvement Association, Pat, call me and be like, can you come down and can we talk again? Because for whatever reason, we're having trouble getting our message out again with this other hearing. And that's that still speaks to the issue of time. If you spend enough time in a place and you seem genuinely interested, people who have a story to tell, I think, will often want to tell it. It's just that it's hard to get that luxury to have that kind of time. 
Yeah, and to be, you know, face-to-face instead of cold-calling someone from halfway across the country to say, I know you've never heard of me or the, you know, publication I represent, but um, can you please tell me all these details about these people that you deal with every day who you've got some beefs with? Definitely. Yeah, people in Bladen have said to me a lot, like, so when are you going to write your book? And I'm like, this is the book. (laughs) This is it. Like, the podcast, for me, that is the book. You know, it's not more than that. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine that you might get calls from them. Can you can you explain how to download a podcast to me so I can listen to your work? Yes, I have. Well, and I always send the podcast out um, in the morning to a couple people who are in the podcast so that it's easy for them to find it. But I still got calls from some of the people in the podcast like, can, I can't get this to play. And I'm like, well, that's hard for me to troubleshoot over the phone. But I really do want you to hear it. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So your reporting generally found that the allegations against the Improvement Association was more suspicion and rumors than established facts. One thing that I've noticed some observers have seized on, I've seen some Twitter traffic about it since the podcast came out, is the allegation that the PAC was going into uh, the voting booth with voters to help them. Did you ever figure out where that allegation ultimately came from and, and whether there was anything that crossed the line into some of the sort of weird technical legalities of North Carolina voting law? Yeah. I mean, so voter assistance... I think is a place where the PAC has pushed it basically a little too far. But, um, but the deal is that if a voter comes, if a voter comes in and they say they want assistance in North Carolina, um, they go to the poll judge and they're like, I want assistance. And then the poll judge is supposed to say, okay, do you have these things? And there's a certain, there's a, a number of things. It's a disability illiteracy, um, a couple things like that. And you can always have a relative come in with you, but if you don't have a relative, you the voter can choose who they want to come in and assist them. That happens. And people, sometimes the voter, you know, will point out a member of the pack. A lot of times they will, because they're kind of used to that. The thing is, it's up to the poll judge to kind of evaluate are this, is this really a disabled person? Is this person really blind or do they not, can they not read the ballot? And I think that sometimes it's actually just that people are like really nervous and anxious when they go to vote. Um, in particular, like older black voters can be when they come and they are used to having somebody with them to help them out. Um, and so they ask the back. It's kind of like a buddy system. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's dicey. But just to explain sort of how I think that the pack thinks of it, I did talk to Horace about it, you know, ex- like a bunch of times. The most recently, I was like, um, you know, I think people, I people just think you guys color outside the line on voter assistance. That in the same way that an absentee ballot program can be used as a kind of get out the vote program, this is another kind of like get out the vote program. And I never found any evidence that it was intimidating, but you could see that it, it, you know, that somebody was like following them into the booth and, you know, intimidating them for who to vote for. It wasn't that. It's just like, you're not allowed to just do that unless they qualify. That is actually though on the poll judge. Yeah. So it's, it's really a subjective decision, you know, cause you can't, you know, you can't look at a person and know for definitively they don't have some kind of disability. And there was this memo released from 
Gary Bartlett, the head of the State Board of Elections for a while in North Carolina, that provided guidance around this for poll judges because it had come up and it was a sensitive issue. And his guidance was basically like tread very lightly. So there wasn't even kind of a push from the state side to really crack down on this as though it were a problem. To say in a, in a bigger sense, um, something that was a guide for me a little bit in trying to evaluate when there's mistakes versus when there's something intentionally intimidating or coercive. Um, and that was, uh, for me, voter complaints. Something that you saw a ton of in the McRae situation was a lot of complaints from voters of like, where's my absentee ballot, things like that. And with a lot of the rumors against the PAC, you don't find any complaints from voters saying that my rights were violated or I was hurt, something happened that I didn't want. That doesn't, that's not in and of itself an exonerative thing, but it did kind of help guide me a little bit towards, you know, like what was, um, what was potentially like criminal <laughs> or like really fraudulent and what was um, maybe some people taking advantage of a rule that was not really enforced that heavily in the first place. So that's kind of how I think about voter assistance. Yeah, that makes sense. So one of the big themes of this podcast, I feel like, is that, you know, you you have all these investigations that sort of clear the pack, uh, but the suspicions continue to linger and it has all these sort of, you know, ripple effects through other activities. Is the State Board of Elections or, or anyone else along the line sort of to blame for not publicizing their findings about the the final outcomes of these investigations, is there any way that someone can tamp down this sentiment that you know they knew about it and didn't do anything? I think that there is a big problem in that there anybody can go to a local board of elections and get a stack of complaints. You know, like every time there's an election, there will be complaints of people you know crossing into the the no go zone or or voter assistance or handing something out that seems sketchy or a million complaints but you don't what you won't find is like a big resolution of a lot of them sometimes you'll find something where at least in Bladen it'll be like I went and spoke to the poll judge and it seemed to calm down after that you know what I mean but you don't something that I think was legitimately frustrating in Bladen County um, with uh, this allegation about nursing homes that has gone on for years is there wasn't a big final report saying I found nothing. I think that it would be a little bit more helpful <laughs> if the complaints were cataloged in a way and responded to in a more methodical way. It would certainly be helpful for reporters who are trying to understand what happened. Yeah, you would have to call investigators who haven't been working there for years. Exactly. So so that's that is um that is one thing. And then as th with this case though in particular, like there was supposed to be a letter from the state board from Joan Fleming clearing the pack that was written and just was never sent and they never got it. It's, but the letter exists. It just like actually was never sent. And I think it's because the DA had heard so many complaints that he wanted a second to check into it. Um, I think in this case, in this particular case, there were some cross wires that made things even more unfortunate 
because there had been this key moment in 2016 where sort of you have these two parties getting accused and down one road goes McRae and down another road goes the blatant improvement, but you don't, there's no documentation of, um, you know, what had gone on with the investigation with blatant improvement, which was that it was closed. Yeah. And I guess with McRae, since it's federal, it goes into this black hole of federal investigations and, you know, still hasn't resulted in trial or conviction or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if you have tried to make requests to the Eastern District of North Carolina, um, but I certainly have. And I didn't get any, I didn't get anything back from them. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. There's uh, certain federal agencies like that just sort of end up being a black hole of information for reporters. And you just, you can send out as many requests as you want, but you're not going to get much of any information back. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other thing that struck me about the series is how you sort of shift from the initial episodes of this sort of election fraud whodunit uh, into more of the fallout of the pack uh, in local politics and sort of how it affects these sort of on the ground elections of who gets to be on the town council or the county commission. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to include that shift in, in the narrative here as opposed to just, you know, ending it with, you know, what your findings were on the election fraud? Well, the election fraud is a super interesting kind of like sexy story, I think. You know, what happened with McRae and his workers and there's still a lot that we that is not public that I want to know happened. But the thing that I was really interested in was um, it was kind of it was the impact on people in this place. And when I first went down there, I was just as interested, honestly, in McRae's workers as I was in the blatant improvement pack. Like, it seemed like those relationships were also very intense and intimate, the relationships that he had with his workers that was sort of displayed at the hearing. Yeah, some of them with family, you know. Right, exactly. Stepdaughters, ex-wives, like, stepdaughter or mom like and then even people that aren't actually related you know he was this sort of like father figure it seems like to to some young women there anyway i if mccray ends up going to trial you know he may blow a hole in all the stuff that those women said i don't know but i was just as interested in those relationships is is the point and kind of like how they got into it and what was going to happen to them now, as I was with the blatant improvement pack. It's just that with the blatant improvement pack, they didn't have any indictments over them. (laughs) It was a lot easier to talk to them. And there were two things that happened that made me kind of realize, oh, I'm going to do a different story here. I'm not just going to do sort of, I don't know, like all the personal relationships that I can find on all sides of this, which is what I had been looking for at first. But I was really interested in when I found out the PAC's history, like why the why the Blade Improvement PAC existed and the sort of like intense drawing of districts that led to a lot of the tension between white and black in Bladen, and that led to, um, I believe, uh, the degree of suspicion that ended up in people committing fraud. And, um, and then I also went to that PAC meeting just before the special election where they got into that big fight And when you see a conflict like that, that feels really personal and it was over the politics that I had been looking at, I just was like, I am interested in personal conflict. I was interested in the personal relationships. Those are the kinds of stories that I like to do. And so until I kind of knew both of those things that the pack had both had an interesting history and was about to go through this kind of like personal ripping apart in relationships 
I was like, oh, that's a real story story. Like I can really hang out and and see what the ramifications are going to be of what's happened on the relationships. And that also felt to me like a little bit, I don't know, just more interesting. Like I had heard less about that because obviously in 2020, we've heard so many allegations and each one of those people has like a story. It's something weird has gone on with them since they were accused. There's, you know, 200 plus affidavits in Michigan, none of which turned out to be true around voting. And I would be very interested to know what it's been like for the people who were accused and then the people who felt like they weren't heard afterwards. There's all these kind of like, these are people. So there's going to be these like weird, funny ramifications through their lives. So I guess to, to make a long story short, although that's a little late for that, I um, I, fa- I found that I was doing that story and then I was excited. Like, oh, this is going to be about personal relationships. I want to stick with that and document that rather than I knew that that's exactly what it was going to be at first. Do you think there's a, anywhere in this sort of overall story arc a larger takeaway for American politics as a whole, particularly after 2020? I mean, are we running the risk of you know, people who have worked together, getting faced with these allegations, splitting apart, losing some of their political capital, their political power, their willingness to, to you know, get involved in politics is all at all. Is this sort of maybe what we should take away from this? Or is that, you know, pulling too much out of a local story? It was it was kind of weird because I, on the one hand, with with the Bladen County story that I was doing during the 2020 election and right after I was like, there is a big overlap here, but these are not the same story because in the Bladen story there, well, the fraud is alleged, but it's a much more, it's a story about sort of fighting over an actual case of possible election fraud in a way that with Trump's allegations, a lot of those were purely political weapons. And that is not totally true in Bladen. In Bladen, something weird happened. There hasn't been a trial yet, so... I'm trying to like keep my language aware of that. Um, and I don't know what would happen in a trial anyway. Um, I mean, my the thing that that I was taking away was that it it was so, so hard to kill an allegation that like you could go through an entire process. You could even have a public hearing as happened in 2016 and the group get cleared. And actually not only did did that hearing sort of add to the suspicion of the pack like it, it confirmed for people what they had thought even though the conclusion was the opposite of them being guilty as charged you know so to, it just was like these allegations like they <laughs> they're like impossible to kill you know you can just like keep sort of hammering at them and they'll like yeah. spring right back up in the evidence for them even becomes the hammer that you're hammering and it was it was sobering to think of that because people were trying very desperately in the wake of the 2020 election to disprove allegations in a way that would get ahead of the narrative about election fraud and they couldn't do it. You know, the, the Georgia legislature, for, for example, you know, they, (laughs) there's like certain things that they tried to address in that law that were purely part of the political discourse. They were not things that had happened. They were just part of the politics. 
And that doesn't seem like a good direction to go in that you're like, well, some people are suspicious of this, so we're going to crack down on this, but there's actually no there there, but that doesn't really matter. I think that's unfortunate. I think that like what can happen out of that is more voter suppression because, you know, you have like in these rural places in North Carolina, like Irving Joyner talked about, there's a lot of these black get out the vote groups that have been around since Jim Crow or just after when it was much more difficult um, for black people to vote in North Carolina. And a lot of times like this stuff that comes up as a way to deal with allegations, it, do- it ends up being much more suppressive than having any effect on fraud. But, you know, one thing that we know from McRae and one thing that is true, I think, is that like absentee ballots are you got to watch those. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of room for something there, even if it doesn't happen often. Yeah, that's a place where the that's where the ballot, I think, is most vulnerable. But, you know, what's so frustrating is like I think there's like there's truth there about absentee ballots. And during covid, though, absentee ballots really were needed and I think are really like needed part of the franchise. But just because just because they're vulnerable and because you can point to some cases in areas like Bladen where absentee ballots have been abused p- potentially in Bladen, but like other places where they definitely have been and you cut them off. Like that's not, that doesn't feel appropriate for, I guess the, the way that I would sum it up is like the, the, the procedures and structures that come into place around um in response to these allegations a lot of times seem like incredibly disproportionate and don't have to do with the sort of needs of the people there the needs of the people in bladen definitely include having access to absentee ballots that seems like an issue oh for sure yeah i mean you drive around that county at all and it's like well you know 30 minutes each way to go vote is kind of a pain in the butt if you have any other option <laughs> so that's like way too much that's crazy yeah. and it's hard to see exactly what's going to happen now that trump has left office but the allegations have kind of hung around i'm very interested i don't know that much about um how we're going to deal with a, a pretty significant portion of our electorate that thinks the election is totally illegitimate I don't yet know how that's going to affect our elections going forward, but it seems like awfully dangerous. Yeah. So I wanted to close with talking a little about this sort of sort of the surprise ending of the final episode. I think we're as I was listening to it, I was sort of expecting this was going to be, you know, either Cogdale gets to keep his seat and the PAC's power, you know, continues or the other black candidate, Mark Gillespie, wins. Um, and that just completely shoots that. So I w- really wasn't expecting them, them both to win at the end um, and to essentially increase the share of black political power on the, the county commission down in Bladen. You're, you sort of close the episode with all the concerns of what that will mean and, you know, um, suspicions between Cogdale and Gillespie and their, their different followers. Have you talked to them at all since um, the election in November as to how that sort of played out as the political dynamics on the county commission and, and whether this has ultimately been a net positive for um, the black community down there to have more representation versus, you know, the, the tensions between these two guys? Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to... I was going to end with a story about that, about what it's been like on there since, but it's not sort of totally all on the record. So it just felt too risky writing around it. Um, But I guess what I'll say is 
there have been some surprising overtures, what what look like overtures by Mark in some votes. Um, the kind of votes that, as an example, like, you know, the, these are the kind of votes that happen at, at a county commission level. You know, there's these boards that oversee fire departments in small towns in these counties, and the county commission gets to decide who gets appointed to those boards. And that's the kind of thing that can be very contentious, um, even though I think it sounds incredibly banal. Um, but, you know, it's like everybody knows each other and they've made promises. They have a favor to return. Yeah, there's a need for representation to, you know, mirror the population. Yes, that, but like even more just like I knew his dad and his dad said that he wanted his son to be on this board. Like that was a big concern in this case. And Mark ended up going with the PAC's um, choice on that. Not just Mark though, there was another Republican that supported it. So there is that, and not that Mark is a Republican. Um, but there have been a few votes like that that I noticed where I was like, hmm, like it seems like Mark really is kind of proving his point that like he is an independent thinker and he's going to go with with what he thinks. But I haven't seen when I've talked to Kygdale about it. He's certainly not like, oh, now my mind is <laughs> open and changing because there have been other votes. Yeah, the tensions are still there. The tensions are still there. There's like so much distrust there. Um, and truthfully like those guys they just like they do not see mark as an ally for black interests it doesn't mean he's not going to support black interests sometimes but he is not like they're not counting him when they're counting up in their head like who they got and what they can do like he's they're not counting him um and i'm not really sure what kind of a vote or what kind of a stance mark would have to take to have them really reconsider that you know, they, they, that's another thing about places like this. Like they've known each other for so long. They have a story all written about Mark that we talk about. Um, and it's, it's really hard to imagine that changing, but I do think it's interesting in terms of the numbers. Like I wasn't able to find another time. I don't know. It could have happened cause we didn't do a, like a perfect survey of it, but where you had four black County commissioners in Bladen County, it's pretty hard to pull off with the way voting has been there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a five to four split now. I, was, I went down the rabbit hole in the Bladen County website after listening to the last episode. And it's like, OK, so, you know, the um, the older white incumbent, you know, goes down by a few number of votes. And now a county that's got close to a 50-50 racial split has a five to four um, split on the, the county commission. Yeah. I mean, it's just that obviously, you know, like these are these are not all the same black people. They have like totally different yeah. life experiences and different priorities. Yeah, there's a lot of interest there. But in terms of representation, like there's something to celebrate there. Uh, but not until I think you've really seen a lot of votes take place. And you can see like, oh, you know, the the kind of priorities of this county are shifting in a way that's reflecting um, the black population here, or they're really not. Yeah, that'll be one to watch. And, and certainly a reason for us North Carolina reporters to, to keep a close eye on Bladen County in the coming years and see how all these dynamics uh, play out. 
so Zoe, thanks so much for coming on our podcast about a podcast and getting really meta about uh, about your program, the Improvement Association. Thank you. I'm Colin Campbell. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Under the Dome. We'll talk to you soon. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.